an honor to open the Word of God with you this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9 as we resume our study of the Gospel of John. We will look at the whole chapter today. Uh, However, I'm going to read just verses 1 through 7 to begin. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, would you be pleased to minister to our hearts through this passage this morning. Help us to consider our own hearts before you and before Christ. Convict us in areas that we need to be convicted, but also encourage us with who you are and who you are for us in Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, I would argue to say that most of you in this room have seen an optical illusion. A picture or a moving image of sorts that can be seen as one thing or something totally different based on your own perception and the way of looking at it. You've seen many of examples of these, I'm sure. Perhaps the famous picture of the two silhouette faces facing one another. Is it the two faces or is it the white vase in between? Or maybe more, more recently, uh, I think this was on the internet at some point, uh, being sent around where the, the ballet dancer is spinning around and you're supposed to decide, is she spinning around clockwise or counterclockwise? And you get all different answers to that question. Well, an older famous example of an optical illusion is the duck rabbit picture. Do you know the duck rabbit picture? Where is it a rabbit or is it duck? Depending on how you look at it. Uh, this was put together by the famous psychologist uh, Joseph Jastro over a hundred years ago. And he was interested in how one's emotional state or environment influenced what was seen in the picture. Scripture has much to say about spiritual perception and how it's influenced by one's heart condition. Two people can look at the same event and see something totally different, even opposite and contrary to one another, based on heart-level commitments. In our passage in John chapter 9, we see a stark contrast between the perception of the blind man 
and the Pharisees concerning who Jesus Christ is, the light of the world. Which raises some important considerations, questions for us to consider as we look at this chapter. So I want you to think about these questions as we go through the text today. First of all, what do you see when the light of the world shines? And it is shining, even today. Do you recognize Jesus and his works? You know, we talk about Jesus a lot. Do you recognize who he really is? And what obscures your vision or your sight regarding who Christ is? Our text tells us three things that happen when the light of the world shines. First of all, in verses 1 through 7, when the light shines, the work of God is displayed. You know, Jesus, after leaving the temple, and remember, he was about to be stoned to death. We don't know how, much, how long after that uh, incident took place that he sees the blind man, but it's, he's leaving the temple and he sees this man blind from birth. And his disciples ask this question, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now this reflects some thinking at that time, uh, which is not so uncommon today, that suffering could be tied to particular sins in a person's life. And in this case, his own sins, even in the womb, that was one uh, thought of the time. You know, think of Job's friends uh, trying to tie his suffering to particular sins in his life. So this could be his own sin, or it could be the sin of his parents. Did they do something wrong for him to be punished like that? Now, in our day, we would ask questions like, what did he do to deserve that? Or you might ask yourself, or have asked yourself, what did I do to deserve this? Now, on one level, the answer to that question is that we've all sinned. We all have sin in our lives. And that misery and death have permeated the world since the fall. So on a general, broad level, all have sinned. And we experience suffering in a fallen world. But Jesus' response to this question should caution us should caution us against presuming to make direct connections between suffering and specific sins in someone's life. And by the way, we're more prone to do that with other people's lives than our own. In fact, we don't appreciate it much if we feel like someone's doing that with us. But what did Jesus say? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, he totally redirects their thinking. This is an unexpected answer, I'm guessing, for the disciples. He redirects their thinking from the cause of the blindness to the purpose of the blindness. God's purpose. John Piper, in commenting on this passage, I think, 
makes a very profound observation. And you kind of have to think a little bit uh, to unpack it. Like there's a lot of truth in it. He says, cause is never the decisive explanation of anything. Purpose is. Because if you think about purpose, it encompasses the past, but it points forward to the future. It brings hope. And in light of who God is, thinking about His purpose in it. That should encourage you greatly. As you think of passages like Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, in the context of that passage, that includes suffering. That includes difficult things and affliction. And by way of application, I think it's worth considering how this shift in thinking could encourage you in your suffering and trials. You know, we're often tempted to ask the why question. Maybe only the why question. Perhaps it would be more profitable to ask the question, what is God going to do through this? Ask that question. It's a given that you're going to ask the why question. But ask the purpose question. And how might that change your perspective? And we might also add that for the believer, in light of the rest of Romans 8, the question should be also, what good will God do for me in this? Versus what we often think, may not verbalize it, but we're often tempted to think, why has God done this to me? You see, that last question implies negative or bad intent on God's part. He has good intentions for you. He is for you. He's not against you, as the Scripture says. Now, in saying that, the rest of John 9 shows us that this man was healed, that, that God's works displayed in his life meant healing. But there are other passages in Scripture where healing doesn't take place. But it is no less the case that God's power and works are displayed. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 12 in Paul's life. He prayed for something to be removed, and it wasn't. But God's grace was sufficient, and His power was displayed in His life. Now, the question for us in light of those two scenarios, are you okay with either one? Are you okay with that? The healing or the not healing? And I would argue to say that if you have a right view of the character of God, that will not be a problem for you. His intent is good toward you. Now, another, just a side note, application in this first few verses here is that this is something worth praying for in the midst of suffering, whether it's your own suffering or the suffering of others. Pray that the works of God might be displayed in that situation. Yes, you can pray for healing, 
But don't forget to pray that the works of God might be displayed at the same time. Now, don't miss the compassion demonstrated by the Lord Jesus here for this blind man. Think how hard this man's life would have been, especially in that day and time. He had no job, no hope but to beg day after day just to sustain life, just to have food to eat. And there were no special handicapped sensitivity programs or opportunities at that time. He had nothing. He was an outcast. Yet Jesus noticed him and cared for him. He hasn't changed. The same compassion is extended today. If you are weary and heavy laden, he will be willing to give you rest. Now Jesus goes on in verses 4 and 5 to set what he's about to do in the larger context of his mission. His work is while it is day. This probably refers to his earthly ministry. While it is day, he needs to complete his father's mission. He says night is coming, referring to his departure, his death, when he would leave this world. But as long as he's in this world, he is the light of the world. Now notice he includes we there. We must work the works of God. May not be the strong emphasis in the passage, but I think there's a lot of truth in other passages that link up with this, that in a very real sense, we work the works of God as his followers in this life. We are the light of the world, right? Interestingly, in Acts 26, Paul highlights the fact that his gospel proclamation ministry is one that opens the eyes of the blind. So in a very real sense, we are involved in these works as followers of Christ, as the children of God. So I think one thing that we can take away from this is notice Jesus' sense of urgency for his mission. He needs to be about his father's business while he is on this earth, while it is still day. The same is true for us. While we are in this world, we must be about the father's business. Do you live that way? Do you live as though night is coming? There will be an end to your life here on this earth. We will go to be with the Lord in glory after death as we trust in Christ. But there is a sense of urgency for the work that needs to be done today. Do you live that way? Now he proceeds to anoint the man's eyes with mud and tells him to wash in the pool. There's many theories of why why does he do it this way? Why does he heal the man by making mud and putting it on his eyes? And there's many suggestions But just a few thoughts. This kind of mirrors an Old Testament story. Uh, 2 Kings uh, 5, where the prophet Elisha heals the leper by telling him to wash in the pool and come back. And he, he says he does that, or he told him to do that, 
so that the people will know that there is a prophet in Israel. In a very real sense, Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king. He is showing himself to be such through this event. But maybe more importantly is this little detail about the the meaning of the name of the pool. Why include that? Siloam, which means sent. Well, Jesus is talked about as being the sent one, the Messiah, who would do this, according to Luke 4, 18. And this is citing from Isaiah as well. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. So I think perhaps one reason for the manner in which Jesus goes about this healing is to point to his identity as the sent one, the one who gives sight to the blind, the one who is the prophet. The washing also probably symbolizes cleansing, you know, a cleansing in order to see. And we'll come back to that as we move along. So he, he performs this great miracle, this display of the work of God. What will be the reaction to this beautiful act? Brings us to point two on your outline. People love the darkness rather than the light. And this takes us on through verse 34. We see in these verses that follow an example of what we saw earlier in John 3, 19, which reads, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, for the most part, the man's neighbors, and especially the Pharisees here, as we go to see, they don't want to see this as a work of God. But rather something that can be explained or attributed to something else. It's not the same man. can't be the same man. He probably wasn't actually born blind. Now, before we begin to be too critical of this kind of response, to the work of God. Have you ever been tempted to explain the work of God away? So that functionally speaking, we wouldn't say this out loud, but functionally, God is largely uninvolved in the world and in your life. Yeah, I'm going to see him one day in glory, but everything happens according to natural causes here on this earth. And perhaps one of the key symptoms of this view, this perspective, is prayerlessness. You know, I think of the, some of you are old enough in here to remember the Scooby-Doo cartoon. Um, And as I was putting this in my notes, I was thinking, you know, I used a cartoon illustration one of the last times I preached probably think I watched the Cartoon Network all day long or something. But if you remember the Scooby-Doo episodes, they all followed the same pattern. You know, there was some seemingly supernatural thing going on, but in the end of the episode, the mask comes off and we really find out none of that was happening. It was so-and-so doing this. It looks supernatural, but it really isn't. 
If you think the works of God can be explained by mere natural factors, you don't really know who Jesus is. And you won't, certainly won't believe his works. You see, you cannot unmask Jesus. He is the light of the world. The Word become flesh. Now, as we follow the text on through, and I'm going to speed up here a little bit now, so don't be nervous that I'm not going to get through this. Um, There's a progression of sorts in this passage. In two opposite directions, in terms of perception. The healed man's spiritual perception seems to get clearer as the text moves along and culminates in his expression of faith. We see this initially when when asked about his healing. He says, the man Jesus told me to do this and I got healed. Later in verse 17 he says, Jesus is a prophet. Later in the text, he seems to become more bold and fearless in his witness to Christ. He even faces excommunication, being kicked out of the synagogue if he confesses Jesus in verse 22. And he gives personal testimony about Jesus doing this work of God in his life. You know, think about the, the contrast here, the intimidation factor that would naturally be the case. Here's this poor, uneducated man speaking to the educated religious elite about the things of God. Yet he is bold. He is fearless. And he gives his simple testimony as we sung earlier. I was blind, but now I see. Very simple. And oftentimes, God can use that simple testimony in our lives to impact unbelievers that we interact with. More so, perhaps, or more often, than some detailed intellectual apologetic that we think we need in order to witness to the unbeliever. I would encourage you to think about your personal testimony. To be able to articulate it in a simple way. And use it as a tool to share your faith with the lost. God often uses that simple testimony, that experience with Christ, to impact others. And later on when they say, you know, you're a disciple of him... We're disciples of Moses. You know, he doesn't argue that point. He's fine with that label, that I'm a disciple of Jesus. And as I said, he ends up believing and worshiping. Well, what about the Pharisees? What, what is their perception in this? Well, what we find with them is that they exhibit a hardening of heart through this passage, a blinding of sorts. First of all, they say, Jesus can't be from God. He healed on the Sabbath. He's breaking the Sabbath. Many think that they're pointing to 
they're, they're thinking that somehow anointing his eyes is sort of like kneading bread on the Sabbath. And then that's forbidden. Therefore, he can't be from God. By the way, that's not in the Old Testament. That was their tradition. That was their teaching about the Sabbath. And they didn't just hold their own views, but they agreed, it says in verse 22, to persecute anyone who confesses Jesus to be the Christ. So that's ramping it up a notch. They say, give glory to God, to this man. This man is a sinner. It's blasphemy. The very same thing that they were about to stone Jesus to death earlier in the temple. Saying, he is a sinner. And they're not satisfied with the man's explanation. This speaks to their blindness. They want to hear it again. Because it can't be that. It's a hardening of heart. And then they go on to say in verses 28 and 29 that, you know, you are a disciple of him, but we... We are disciples of Moses. Remember what Jesus said about those who claimed to believe and follow Moses, but did not believe in him. Chapter 5, verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? They aren't true disciples of Moses. Later in John chapter 8, there were Jews who claimed to be the offspring of Abraham, but didn't believe in Jesus. How did Jesus respond to that? What was his interpretation of their spiritual state? He said, you are of your father, the devil. Paul says something similar about unbelieving Jews in his day. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So despite the claims of the Pharisees in our passage, they are exposed, not as half-Christians, but haters of God. Not disciples of Moses or offspring of Abraham, but children of hell, as Jesus would later call the Pharisees in Matthew 23. It all comes down to what you believe and how you perceive Jesus. And Jesus said that his healing, you know, he said his healing would, would display the works of God. But the Pharisees were fixated on these Sabbath rules of their own making, distorting the intent of the Sabbath to begin with. So much so that they don't even see or perceive the Lord of the Sabbath, standing in their midst. You may have been someone who 
has been so focused on religious activity in the church that you don't even see Jesus. You don't even know who he is. So focused on the mechanics of church life that you miss Jesus and don't recognize him. Perhaps it's forms of legalism or whatever the case may be. Do you see who Jesus is? Apart from all your attendance and everything else in the church. This brings us to the interpretive conclusion of our passage in verses 35 through 41. In this section, we see that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. When the light shines, the blind see, and the seeing are blinded. Now, it's clear in in these verses that this whole event points to a deeper spiritual reality. That the physical healing of the blind man was a picture of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. Jesus seeks the man out after he was cast out by the Pharisees. And the man believes that Jesus is the Son of Man. And he worships him as God. He kneels before him. Then Jesus says something very profound and on the surface very confusing. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The purpose of this judgment is that the blind may see and that those who see may become blind. What does that mean? What does he mean by this statement? Who are the blind? Well, in this context, it's those who are in spiritual darkness and are lost, but know it and look to the light for help. Perhaps in another way of putting it, it's kind of like how Matthew speaks of when Jesus says, the poverty of spirit. Those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They know they need a Savior. They know they're blind and they need the light to help them to see. So who are, the bl- who are those who see in this passage? Verse 39. Well, in context, it's those who think they see, but continue to reject the true light. Hence, they become blind. And some of the Pharisees standing there overheard Jesus speaking this to the man, and they say, are we also blind? Jesus responds, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, Your guilt remains, verse 41. So let me paraphrase what I think Jesus means here in this context. If you were blind in the sense of knowing that you're lost in sin 
and you look to faith in the light, like the blind man, then you will not be guilty of your sin. But, now that you claim to see that you're, you think you're not blind in sin, but reject the true light, your guilt for your sin remains. That's what he's saying here. I think it's a parallel passage to this idea we find in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. You don't have to turn there, but that's the passage where Jesus says, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, he came to call those who knew they needed a physician, not those who claimed to be well, but are really not. I think the same idea is expressed there. You know, this makes me think of this, the proverb, uh, proverb 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. If you are wise in your own eyes, you'll be blind to Jesus. So where, do, where does all this leave you and me from this passage? Well, I have a question, a general question on your outline. How is your eyesight? More specifically, how are you seeing Jesus? This is perhaps the most important question that you can answer in your life right now. How are you seeing Jesus? Not how did you see Jesus at one point in your life when you were really into the church stuff. But how do you see him today? You know, the Gospel of John gives us evidence of what it means or what it looks like to truly see the light in faith. One example is those who see follow him and do not walk in darkness. They walk in the light as he is in the light. 1 John. You know, when you don't, when you don't see someone for a while, you almost forget what they look like. Maybe you found that to be true with some old acquaintances or friends that you haven't seen in some time. Is that true with Jesus in your life? Maybe you've forgotten what he, who he is and what he's done and what he's doing now. He's very active now in this world. Do you recognize his works? Or do you explain those types of things away? Jesus is not an optical illusion to be perceived any way you would like to. Like it's an optical illusion game. You know, you get to choose how you perceive it. He is not an optical illusion. He is the true Son of God. The King of kings, Lord of lords, the true light that has come into the world and there isn't salvation in no one else. Remember the goodness of Christ displayed 
in this passage, the goodness and mercy to this blind man, this rejected nobody. That's the nature of our Savior, the good shepherd who seeks out his lost sheep. If you acknowledge your sin and look to him, you will see. He will give you sight. And you will have eternal life. Salvation is not for those who would pretend to have no need for it. So if you feel like a sinner today, you feel burdened by your sins, you feel lost in your sins, there is hope for you. He can give you sight. And He calls you to come to Him in faith. And He will heal you like the blind man. Now one reason why many ultimately reject Christ and refuse to see him for who he is is that people love the glory that comes from man rather than from God. There's an interesting parallel in chapter 12, verse 42, where it talks about those who had seen these signs that Jesus was doing, these, he- these healings, these miracles, <clears throat> but they did not confess him out of fear of being kicked out of the synagogue. Sound familiar? And unlike the blind man, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Maybe that's a struggle for you today. And maybe you've believed or professed faith, but your vision has become impaired through sin and the love of the things of this world. Or perhaps you're trying to see Christ and trying to get the glory that comes from man at the same time. Best of both worlds, right? Can't do it. Seeking the glory that comes from this world, from man, will obscure your vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and will blind you to who he is. If that's you this morning, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and turn to your Savior. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you. And turn and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this passage, this this wonderful demonstration of your work. Not only the physical healing, but the spiritual healing. Lord, I pray for any in our midst this morning who are blind to the things of Christ, that you would open their eyes, give them sight, that they might see your glory. And Lord, I pray for those here today that that have seen you, that have believed, yet are struggling, struggling with sin, 
and their vision is obscured, would you help them to repent and to believe the gospel? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.